Well, uh, welcome to H2O Church. Uh, my name is Alfonso Mack. For those who do not know me, I'm, I'm a, a pastor in training on staff here. And uh, let me just tell you, I'm grateful uh, for this opportunity from God to be able to share God's word with you um, this morning. If you've been around at all, or if you, you are new, we have been journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning, we're just going to be right in chapter 5. And so we're just kind of picking up um, from our time last week. Now, before I actually dive into anything there are many moments in the scriptures and situations in the scriptures that are just plain old weird, okay? And I'm just saying that just to preface this morning. There's some wild situations that take place in scripture, and where we'll be this morning is that. So, so I would literally just say, buckle your seats, your seat belts, okay? Not just your seat, but your seat belt, okay? Um, because this morning is a little bit hard. It's a difficult passage, and it's just odd, okay? Um, because what's happening is Apostle Paul is, is kind of speaking to this specific sin that has taken place in this church and talking about this church in Corinth, about how they actually dealt with that sin and what they should be doing about that sin. And so what I want for us this morning, as we are spending time in the, in the text, I just want us to wrestle with this question of why does sin matter so much? Why does sin matter so much? And as we tussle with this question, the main point, and my only one point of this teaching this morning, which will, which will answer this question of why sin matters so much, and we'll unpack that. My main point is this, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross reminds us of how serious sin is. Christ's sacrifice on the cross reminds us that sin is serious. Okay, and so we'll just pretty much just be walking right through verses 1 through 13 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this morning be a little bit more teaching, if anything, than just preaching, um, and so with that, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. One of the things I love is standing for God's Word, so let's read it together. And it says this in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, this is more likely his, step his stepmother, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation, the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens a whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders, remove the evil person from among you. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if you're your first time at H2O Church, welcome. I'm glad you're here. 
I'm glad you're here. Okay. And so, so as soon as you read this, what, what I think about here is that Paul, he kind of is going off in this text as if it's a Twitter rant. Okay. He, he's, he's really just not playing around here. And you see it as soon as he opens up in verse 1. He's saying it's been actually reported. Meaning that it's not like I've just heard. There's been multiple sources and many people who can confirm that there's some crazy stuff going on in your church. He says that there is sexual immorality among you. And so here when he's talking about sexual immorality, he is talking about anything outside of God's design for sex, which is in marriage between a man and a woman. And so when he says that there is, he means that it's actually happening right now. He's not talking about something that has happened in the past and it just happened once. It's, con- it's been continually happening. And so the sin is that he was referring to is incest. I told you the scriptures are weird, okay? And a lot of people today probably wouldn't say I'm struggling with incest, but here we have it in the scriptures, okay? And so, so this is what's going on. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, someone that he calls mom. That's weird, okay? That's very outlandish, and, and, I, and I know what it is, and it, and it seems kind of funny, but, but this is kind of crazy because it's like the, the type of sexual immorality that he's talking about here. It's so bad, it's so egregious and asinine that he says, listen, even the pagans, the Gentiles, they don't even tolerate it. So think about this. In the church, there's a sin that is going on that is so bad that people on the outside are like, yo, the church, they're tripping. Okay, so, so this, is, this is kind of what, what he's saying. And so this is very serious, though. Um, um, and the reason why is because when we actually look at, take some time into history and look at the city of Corn, uh, Corn was this place where people were very sexually free. Okay, people were engaged in all types of wild sexual acts. They used to have just massive parties that would kind of make the modern listener, if you were even to listen to the description of these things, you'd be sick to your stomach of some of the stuff that used to happen in Corinth. But he's saying they don't even do things to the extent of what's going on in your church. He's like, they're not even crossing that line. And it's actually been noted, this is how bad it is, is that in Roman culture, incest was actually a sin where they, some, some say that Caesar, if you were caught in this act, he would actually send you over to a private island to be with yourself, just be by yourself. So this is how serious they take it. Or some people even say that in Roman culture, if you were caught in this, you may have even been killed. So this is what it could be. And I think about this, and I'm just wondering, like, why did Paul use this example to them? It's like the pagans don't even do it. Because in, in, in Leviticus 18, there's this moment where, where God actually tells them that that is actually sin. So I'm shocked he didn't just bring up Leviticus. He didn't just bring up God's word in this moment. And I think he didn't do that because of this wow effect to say that the sin that is happening and that is being committed is not even normal. That people who don't know God are saying, what are you guys doing? This is a problem. And I just can only help but wonder why. And just, just a side note, we're going to ask why a whole bunch today. Because there's a lot of questions in this, in this text of, of, like, just why is this happening? And I think the big thing that Paul had in mind for the church is that, look, outsiders, when they're thinking about you guys, they're like, why would I ever would I want to be a Christian or part of a church of people who look just like me, act like me, or in some cases are even worse than me in the ways that they're living? He's thinking about here for, for the church's moral, moral witness to actually give glory to God. He wants them to be respected amongst outsiders in the way that they live. Because, listen, if the church just continues this and allows it to happen, it would actually diminish and destroy the church's missional witness and the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are just looking. People on the outside are watching. And I just wondered to myself again, well, why in the world did the church just let this happen consistently? Like, there's no one just did anything about it. 
And in verse 2, he answers that question. He tells them that they are proud and arrogant. And then later, even in verse 6, he, he says that their boasting is not good. So here, as he's talking about they're, they're, they're proud and they're arrogant, it just means that they're puffed up. They're inflated uh, uh, with, with an opinion of themselves. And essentially what that looked like for them is their arrogance led them to either believe that, oh, because we've been saved by God's grace, we can do whatever we want. This is a free license for us to go and sin. Who cares? We're covered by God's grace. It doesn't matter and all these things. Or they were to this other point where their arrogance led them to say, well, you know, who cares about what's going on? I mean, I don't want to offend anybody. I mean, that's their business. We'll let them handle that. But these, are, these people are in your church. They're in your family. So you should actually care. And so what was happening in this church is instead of taking sin seriously, it just became tolerated. It, be, it actually was almost championed a little bit. It's like praising people to some degree. It's like, hey, that's, that's good. That's how you get it how you live, I guess, is what they would have probably been saying to each other. So they just became so comfortable with sin, just so apathetic, almost to the point where it's like, is it even affecting them? And that's actually very, very scary to think about, that sin is just happening so much within this church that it's not even affecting the people. Because, listen, you can become so blind to the effects of sin that it actually leads you away from Jesus, where you can't even hear or discern the Spirit of God. This is, this is how serious this is. And Paul, he makes it clear here that this type of arrogant pride and this thought that they have is just flat out wrong. And in verse 2, it's just this really, really gut to the heart. Because he says, shouldn't you be grieved? Shouldn't sin cause you sadness, especially just unrepentant sin in your church? Someone that just keeps living in it. And guess what, though? He's not just only referring to sexual immorality here. If you go and look at verse 11, he talks about other sins, like greed, being an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, a swindler. All, all these things he's talking about. And so he's saying that any person in your church who's living in a certain sin that they just do not care about, this is a problem, and it should grieve us. It should grieve us. Now, the people he is not talking to, let me just go on the other side. He is not talking about people who are actively fighting against sin, who are actively seeking Jesus and looking for healing and laying their lives down before Jesus. And he is also not talking about those who are outside of the church who don't call themselves Christians. So let's just clarify that. This is what he's talking about. He says in verses 12 and 13 that God judges outsiders and that it's pretty much not his business to go and judge them. God will deal with them. And so the church is actually still called to be in the world and still be around those who don't call themselves followers of Jesus. And so listen, if you are in here today and you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome here, even no matter how you are living. We are thankful that you are here. But on the other side, let me make just a quick comment. Because it can be very tempting for Christians in these, in these moments to, 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 when we look at the world, say, oh, the world's just so bad. It's just so jacked up. But then, and that leads us to only just go and stay within like our holy huddles. And to not ever associate with those who do not know Jesus. Jesus has called us in Matthew 28 to literally go out to all the world and pretty much preach the gospel. This is what he called us to do. And so if we, if we were to be able to live like this where we can only stay around Christians, and what this means is every Christian that's in the room today, we should seclude ourselves, only have our own grocery stores, only have our own jobs, and never talk to anyone else on the outside world. But even that looks weird. Okay? This is not 
what he is saying. And all of this is just, that would just be complete foolishness to think that we are not to be around those who do not know Christ. Because even Jesus himself was actually hated by the religious people because he spent time with those types of people. He spent time with the sinner, the tax collector, the prostitute, the drunkard, all of those people. And thus what we must do as followers of Jesus is resist this temptation to stiff-arm people outside of the church. Okay? We got to do that. We got to resist that. And we have to also look and say to ourselves, we have to be people who have open arms and invite people in like Jesus did. We got to resist this pride and arrogance of ourselves that will make us think that we're better than other people who would need the gospel just as much as us. Because it can be very tempting to forget that our sin has placed us in a place where we don't deserve God's uh, salvation through Jesus. Sometimes we may forget that. And so we have to understand that Christ died for all people. Now, I'm just going back and just looking at, at verse 2. Let's make some connections a little bit. And so he's talking about this man, okay? So he said, you should be grieved over, over the sin that's going on, but he says that you should remove this person from your congregation. Now, if you look at verse 2 and then you also look at verse 11, he, he talks about you shouldn't associate with this person. You shouldn't even eat with this person. You should kick them out of the church. And just so you know, he's talking about the person who's in the church that is blatantly sinning in the Christian community, Okay? Just, I'm clarifying that again, just so you know who he's talking about, okay? And so when I think about all this stuff that we, we just um, unpacked just from verse 2, I can only help but ask this question when it comes to sin, is do our hearts today actually feel grieved and saddened over sin? Like seriously, in your own life, do you actually feel grieved when you fall short? Does it pain you? Do we get saddened by the reality of our brokenness or even the brokenness that we see in the lives of others around us? What we must do is mourn our sin. But listen, we have to understand that mourning our sin is actually a gift from God. And it's this invitation for us to swim in the sea of his love and grace. Because what it does is it helps us to see how we ought to come back to the Lord and lay our heavy and broken hearts before him. It's to help us see the comfort that he provides and the forgiveness that we get in him. And so conviction of sin is what leads us into mourning, and it actually leads us back to Jesus to want to live like Jesus. And this makes so much sense as to why Paul would communicate at the end of verse 2 that you should just remove this person. And he talks a little bit more extensively as we continue on in verse 3. He says, even though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so we're going to unpack this here just a little bit. So Paul here, he pretty much says that even though I am from a distance, I have already passed judgment on this person. So here when he's talking about past judgment, I have already declared that what this dude has done is actually wrong. Okay? And it deserves punishment. And, and, and what he is essentially saying as he makes a description of, like, even though I'm with you in spirit, he's like, this, picture that as being that one friend of yours who you're really close to that is long distance, and you end up having a conversation with them on the phone, and they're calling you out when you're tripping. 
Okay, this is kind of what he's taught, how this relationship looks with this church. He helped plant this church. He knows them intimately, like very close with them. And so he's sitting over here. He's like, even though I'm from a distance, I'm still a brother and a part of your family. And so I have this opportunity to be able to speak to what's going on in your life. And so that is what Paul is doing. And, and, and when it says he, he passes judgment, I know that it could be tempting for some people to think, well, man, you know what? Only God can judge me, though. I don't care about nothing you're talking about right now. And I'm like, listen, that sounds really cute and nice. That only God can judge me. It, re- it really, really does. The only God can judge me. That sounds real great. It actually sounds like it might be, might be true. But, but I just want to say it this way, is that when we say that, what it is, is it's actually bathed in the, it's this, like, this self-sufficient arrogance that says, I can live however I want, and there's no consequences for the way that I, I live my life. But here's the grim reality. Even if people in the church aren't judging you or wanting to call you out, or no one does at all. If I, were, if I was anyone and I think about my own life, listen, I don't actually want God to be the one to judge me, y'all. <laughs> I really don't. I'd rather have people in my life judge me, in the community of faith that I live with, judge me before God does. And this is why Paul, he actually says in verse 5 to hand that person over, right, so that they may be saved on the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is this day of judgment when everyone will have to stand before the Lord and have to answer for how they live their lives on this planet. And listen, if we have lived in sin and do not repent at all, and we don't believe in the Lord Jesus and the gospel, and we don't follow him, we can only expect that we would be in eternity in hell, a place that is completely devoid of God's presence. So that's what the day of judgment is. That's what the day of the Lord is. That's what he's talking about. And so if we continue to live however we want, that's where we are going to end up. So listen, I don't want God to judge me because that would be very, very sad. And for the person in here who, who says, well, I've claimed faith in Jesus. You know, I've had some spiritual experiences in my life. But listen, if you, the scriptures remind us in, in this crazy way, I'm going to read something here, that even though that might be the case for you, if you continually live in unrepentant sin, you are actually likened to someone who does not believe who does not know Jesus, and guess what you can expect if that's you? An eternity separated from God. Hebrews 10 is crazy. Listen, it says, For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, meaning you're still in your sins. Meaning, and God punishes sins, okay? It says, But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregards the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is terrifying to fall in the hands of the living God. Okay? Yeah, I know, I know that, that that's very, very tough to hear. And we're going to unpack, even though that that is tough, God still loves us so much more. He really, really does. So it doesn't matter where you stand in this room. God still loves you, and we will talk a little bit about that. And so don't let these statements and all this stuff that we've read stop you from understanding God's immense grace that he's given us through Jesus. And that's why verse 5, even though it has very intense language, is actually very, very beautiful. I mean, look at how intense it is. 
He says, hand this dude over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Don't that sound crazy? Like, that's very intense. Like, yo, what is going on? Why, what does that even mean? Why would he say something so harsh like that? Well, handing someone over to Satan or a brother or sister over to Satan is pretty much just to send them into the world. Okay? It's the place where, where in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 4 calls Satan the God of this world. Okay? And so it's the place just outside of God's community where you're experiencing, experiencing his grace and mercy within the community of faith and where Christ's presence reigns. Okay? So Christ Jesus himself actually said where two or three are gathered, I am there with them. Okay? So, so, so when you're outside of that and you're in the world, this is where you are. And what happens is he said that this person may be saved even though we send them there. And so it's letting someone pretty much see the seriousness of their sin and what they've done before God with the hopes with the hope that it would actually lead them towards repentance before they actually experience Christ's judgment. Like, just think about that for a minute, okay? And so the big picture here is that handing someone over to Satan or at least communicating them is not actually the goal, okay? That's not actually the goal. The, the goal here is to actually restore a person to faith. And so correction is actually good. It has a purpose. We don't, we don't just sit around and judge and discipline people for no reason. Hebrews 12 says that, that God disciplines those he loves so that they might share in his holiness. God wants his church to be holy. And so a little bit of discipline is actually good for us. And even as I say, it's like, well, why would the church need to discipline anybody? Why, do, why does he keep using this language about handing someone over? Why we got to talk about kicking someone out? I mean, it sounds right, but it kind of feels a little bit, bit wrong. I thought the church was supposed to be this place filled with mercy and grace and forgiveness and, and all of these things. And absolutely, that is true, 100%. This is the place where you ought to find it. We ought to meet you with grace, love, and mercy here, especially at H2O Church. But we got to understand that if someone continues in destructive living, then they cannot be allowed to continue with us because sin itself, if it's left unchecked, can lead to a bunch of problems in the long run. And we'll see that here in a little bit. But you have to understand that even though this language is harsh, it is an act of love. This is all an act of love. It's not loving to allow someone in your life that you deeply care about, that you love, to just let them continue to destroy their lives and the lives of other people by the way that they live. We must correct them. Because if it wasn't, then... We wouldn't need God's word. We wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't need co conviction for sin. We definitely wouldn't have needed Christ to sacrifice his life for us upon the cross. We wouldn't have needed any of that. We wouldn't have needed any of it. But yet God is still just so gracious to us that he gives us his undeserved love despite having to punish us. <laughs> he loves us. And he wants to save us so that we can be with him. Now, let's continue to piece all of this together. So if we go down and look at verse 6, it says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens a whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So here he says that a little leaven leavens a whole batch. And so for my people that, lo- that love sourdough and, and, and love making their own bread, I know there's some people in here who do that. You know that a little bit of yeast and, and a little bit of just something makes the whole thing rise up. It's just amazing how that actually works. And so here he's just talking about, listen, all you need is just a little bit to make the whole batch rise up. And that little, that little bit that you have, it just spreads throughout it, and it just makes it become what it is. And that's why sourdough is, is amazing, right? It's great. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to see. But here, he's saying that this is what happens with the similar effects of sin in your churches. This is why I said if we leave stuff unchecked, it can cause harm in the long run. Okay? And so here, he's talking about, like, sin is serious. Not just for the individual who's committed it, but also for that church of believers that is surrounded by it. Because if we do not repent or we are not cleansed, and it can affect and ruin us. This is why we are called by God in the scriptures to actually cast judgment and correct people within our church. We must call out sin because if we don't, it will actually start to destroy us and everything else and every person in its path because that's what sin is intent on doing. Sin is, is to lead us more into sin. It's to, it's to literally kill us. It's to lead to a destruction in our lives and actually destroy us. And so if we do not remove that which is bad, it will continue to corrupt the rest. Okay, that's how the little bit of leaven actually leavens the whole lump. And so insidious things don't have much effect, though, when you think about it on the outside. But when they're on the inside, it actually can be deadly. Just think about, like, what cancer does, right? When cancer's on the inside, it literally spreads to a point where it literally kills. Gangrene is the same exact type of thing. It's like if you do not take these things and cut them off, guess what it will do? It will kill you. It will literally kill you. And this reminds me uh, of something that my coaches used to talk about a lot when I played football back at BG. So I was here in 2012 to 16. I played football, and I had three different head coaches. And, and, pre, and two out of my three head coaches used to talk about this concept that we got to get rid of the cancers on a team. And I remember there was one year where in the summertime we were training and stuff, and our coach, he literally sat us down after, after a Wednesday workout. We're just having like 707, and he just goes off. There's a bunch of guys on the team who are doing some wild things. And he literally says, if this stuff does not stop, any person that I catch, I will get rid of every last one of you. You're one strike and you're out. And he said, listen, what we have to do is we have to cut off the people who are literally causing problems on this team. Because if we don't cut those people off, it will start to affect everyone else. And when I think about that, this just reminds me of what's happening here in this text. Because, listen, if, if we just allow things to keep happening in here, what that does is it trickles down to someone else. And then that person, when they see and they get a hold of it, they think that those things are okay. That's usually what ends up happening with siblings. If a, sibling see, if a younger sibling sees an older sibling getting away with something, what are they going to want to do? The same exact thing. I mean, I can get away with it. It doesn't really matter. If there's no punishment for it, why would I not do it? Right? This is, that's literally how that works. And so that's why Paul says a little bit of leaven can leaven a whole bunch. And so, but let me explain this so we can understand this a little bit deeper. Because this is actually cool that he uses this type of analogy. So Paul's language here about leavened bread is he's actually looking back to Exodus and thinking about the Passover in Exodus 12. So it was this time where God, he, he was going to punish him, his chosen people's enemies for keeping them in slavery and for not letting them go. So what he told his people to do was take a, a nice spotless lamb and take its blood and post it over their doorposts so that at night when the death angel was going to come and destroy the firstborn uh, uh, of the Egyptians, it would actually pass over their place. 
because they had the blood on their door showing that they were actually God's people. And so, he, and so what, they, what God told them to do uh, is, is when they started to look at the Passover later, he says, I want you to do this thing for me, please. When you are observing and celebrating the Passover, I want you to purify your homes of all leavened bread. That's what he told them to do. In this case, the, the leavened bread would have symbolized sin. He says, I, w- I want you to get rid of all of it so that you can be covered. And so God wanted his people to be set apart and purified. And so when I think about here, Paul is, is reminding them that this is what God's longing for the church family is, is that it's moral purity. He says, go and remember and reenact the Passover when you remove the person from your midst. So you're getting rid of the unleavened bread so that you can look holy and pure as if you are God's people. That's what he is talking about. And when you do this, understand that the Passover is symbolizing the distinction that you are God's people, the Israelites, and that you are not the rest of the world. You're not the Egyptians in this case. So he's saying, church, you are distinct. And you want to know why you are distinct. Fast forward is why he's saying this. It's because of Christ, the Passover lamb. This is why we are distinct. The one who was literally sacrificed for us, who spares us from the judgment of death, just like that Passover did back in Exodus when the blood was over the door and literally spared the people from the coming wrath. Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb, is the same thing for us, which calls us into this higher standard of living as God's holy people. And so if sin was not serious, then Jesus would not have had to sacrifice his life and die for us so that we would not have to face the coming wrath of God. He would have literally died for nothing if that was the case. And so if sin isn't serious, then listen, what we should do all right now is just get up and walk right out because all this stuff we're doing this morning is pointless. It really would be. And we should just stop telling people about Jesus and and the need for salvation if sin isn't serious. And so if if, if the church can just live however they want, then there is no need for a Savior. There isn't. You can just go live however you want. Why would you need to be saved if it's okay? But listen, sin is serious. It's serious in a world where we can look around and you see that there is consequences for wrongdoing. Listen, if our wrongdoing wasn't a problem at all, then we should be able to get away with anything. But that's not the reality in which we even live in, even if you don't even call yourself a Christian. Think about it. Our own hearts have this desire for justice which is a reflection of God's heart, which is just embedded in us. That's why the whole justice system exists. That's why, why our parents spank us when we do wrong. And that's also why when you work a job and you do something wrong, you actually get fired for what you are doing for stepping out of line. It's in us, embedded in our society. And I think about even just this example of of work with an employer. It's like, why would they fire you? Because they don't want you to be representing them in their company. That's how it is. So they have to get rid of you. But I know that that sounds a little bit crazy. So let me just tell you, even though that's the case, God's grace is so much bigger than all of that. And so when he talks about Christ's Passover lamb being sacrificed, guess what we can do? We can sit here and we can praise God for this verse because he literally reminds us that Christ has been sacrificed. And we should lift our voices with shouts of joy, especially when we are singing. We should be praising God because Christ was literally slain for our sin because it was that serious. 
even the stuff that we might not in our hearts want to repent of right now. Because I know there's some of us in here that feel a little bit stubborn. We came in here with some stuff this morning, and we don't want to repent of it. But guess what? Christ, the, the, the Lamb of God, was literally slain for whatever it is that you're dealing with right now. Because only he could have been the one to actually take on all of what we are wrestling with and experience the death for it that we did, that we needed to have for it. So just think about that. Only Christ, the perfect son of God, could have stood in your place to take on all that you are dealing with, all the stuff that you want to let go of. He's a perfect lamb of God who laid his life down for his family so that they don't have to experience the consequences of sin. And so, listen, Jesus died so that we wouldn't stay in our sin. He died so that we could be more like him. And his blood, it sets us apart. It makes us holy. It makes us a different people from the world. And that is why Paul told them to observe this feast and do it with sincerity and truth. Don't observe this feast with the, with the leavened bread of malice and evil. Because, listen, we are supposed to represent Jesus as a body of Christ. God has chosen his church to be his hands and feet and be an example. And it must be kept pure. And I don't mean that there won't be a little bit of struggle. But those who are seeking Jesus, we are called to continually represent him. And Christ just is not going to stand for this type of behavior when we are willing to just not do anything about it. The church isn't just some place, a social club. Okay, we, we are this place where we are showing the world about the living God. And people should look at us and they should get a vision of what God is like. That's why we can't be soft on sin. That is why church discipline is needed. We cannot allow our hearts to become numb to it. We must lay it down at the feet of Jesus, the one who has conquered it all. And so as I get ready to close, I just want to close with just three just quick little applications. Okay, just something to think about as we leave here. And the first is this. Be open about your sin and confess it. Be open about your sin and confess it. Listen, people who bring darkness to light, they do this so that Jesus himself, the light, can literally overcome all of that as which is dark. But the things that are dark, it ends up festering, and it just grows. I just think about mold, right? And darkness, molds just continue to grow. But when you get some light on it, it actually slows it down, okay? So we must continue to actually be people who confess our sin, and we repent of it. And I know that there's some people in here who might be living in unrepentant sin and unconfessed sin as a Christian. And maybe you can feel convicted right now for maybe you're living a double life. I just want to say, don't hold, that, hold on to that sin. Lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Because listen, if we don't, what will happen is sin will just continually harden our hearts, and it will actually pull us away from Jesus. And so just be open with people in your life about where you're at or what you're struggling with. Share with them the things that are going on and the things that you are so tempted to not want to share. Because this is where you should find grace, love, and mercy, and forgiveness. So share it. Because what God wants to do is literally let his kindness lead us towards repentance. So that's what we should do. So just confess it so that we can be cleansed by Jesus. The second thing is we must be humble when faced with correction for our sin. And so listen, the way that we respond to correction reveals a lot about the sin that is actually in our hearts. And I know it's hard for someone who reveals sin in our lives because it feels like, man, that hurts a little bit. 
why would this person do it? And I know it's not easy to hear. Trust me, I, I, I failed in this many times. Or where if you ask my wife, she, there's been times where she's literally had to correct me, and there's been times where I have failed in the way that I've responded to her about ways I've either hurt her or someone else or the ways that I am living. And it ends up not being good. Because when I, when I respond in that way, what I'm actually doing, I'm responding more with anger and frustration. And it's just making me stay within my sin. And so what we must do is respond with humility because it actually leads us towards repentance instead of being defensive, which leads us just more into the same ways that we are living. And so let us ask God to literally humble our hearts to receive correction so that we may be transformed into the image of Jesus. And then the last point that I want to leave you with is this. Lastly, just remember Jesus. Just remember Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Go and look to Jesus, that he is our only hope for the sin that we might be dealing with, that we might not be able to overcome. Even for the person who might have to be removed or is removed, Jesus is the only hope for every last one of us. And his death for sin and his resurrection from the dead truly proves and it provides the power for sin to literally be destroyed and overcome. And so if there's something in your life that is killing you right now, remember that Jesus himself died to save you and heal you from that. He wants to transform us. So what we must do is just look to him.